You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. This podcast is sponsored by Receptiva DX. Receptiva DX is a powerful test that can help detect inflammatory conditions on the uterine lining that might be preventing you from becoming pregnant or staying pregnant. If you've experienced implantation failure or multiple miscarriages, ask your doctor about Receptiva DX. Uterine inflammation, if found, can be treated, providing a new pathway to achieving a successful pregnancy. Receptiva DX, because the journey's worth it. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Carrie Beating of the Fertility Center of Las Vegas, back with my darling co-host, Dr. Abby Evelyn from Nashville Fertility Center. Hey, everybody. And Dr. Susan Hudson from uh, Texas Fertility Center. Hello. How are you guys doing? We're good. Great. Glad to talk to you guys. It's been a little while since we've talked. No, it's been a couple of weeks. And I'm like, every time I hit a Sunday afternoon and we're not recording, I'm like, (laughs) what am I missing? Something's not right. I'm not where I should be. And where is Susan and Abby? (laughs) You know, it's it's almost been three years since we've been doing this. So it's it you're right, it's kind of gotten ingrained. It's what we do on Sunday afternoons. Yeah. Talk to our beds. It's exciting. I think we just published our hundred and fiftieth episode at the time that we're recording this one. So that's pretty cool stuff. Exciting. Yeah, that tracks with three years. Because yeah. I don't think we've missed a week in the entire three no, years. No. So wow. Can you believe we've done 150 episodes on fertility? That is just so exciting. Mind-boggling. <laughs> yes, it is. I mean, I never, never would have dreamed when we started out that we mm-hmm. would be at this point. I thought getting 12 episodes a year would be enough. <laughs> Little did I know. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what we were originally planning. Like, yeah, okay, we'll do one, you know, once a month and blah, blah, blah. And here we are. What's new? Anything new in life? Anything exciting or just same old, my, same old? My doggy got very, very sick yesterday and it was what very happened? scary. What happened? Yeah. She, um, that morning she had, um, thrown what up. Kind of dog, what? what kind of she's dog? She's a miniature schnauzer and she's about eight schnauzer. years old. So, oh. you know, old enough to get, start getting worried about, you know, health issues and yeah. that yeah. thing, but she's been pretty healthy and, you know, things like that. And she had, she had thrown up once in the middle of the night, but it was like, dog food and leaves. And I was just like, oh, she had had an upset stomach. Dog food and leaves. Yeah. You know, I was like, okay. (laughs) The usual. The usual, you know. Um, But my husband and I were gone for the day and the kids were at home watching her and she had thrown up a couple more times. No big deal. But then she started um, having blood, like Frank blood. Yeah. That's not good. It was not good. And so we ended up having to do the, you know, middle of the night pet ER thing, which I always hate doing. The first one we called said that it was going to be a wait of three to four hours. And I'm like, I don't think we have, we called our vet. Our vet was like, they can get you in quickly, go there, otherwise start calling around. And I'm like, I don't think three to four hours is the definition of quickly. So we found another one. terms anyway. (laughs) Yeah. So we found another one that was like 45 minutes away that they could have pretty much immediately see her. So that's where we took her. So we're there until like Mm -hmm. 1 a.m. And then they, you know, ended up admitting her and getting her um, uh, IV fluids and antibiotics. She apparently had an intestinal infection. Oh, and, wow. um, So they, it was hemorrhagic gastroenteritis. So she was Ooh. just 
bleeding and um she was did they just treat her like symptomatically support her with fluids and things like that or i guess there's nothing they could do and like iv antibiotics and oh so it was bacterial vitamin and yeah it was so bacterial um they they had um done a little slide and could tell there were like the bacteria were there and everything like that so um, but we, we had to go pick her up this, so we dropped her. So we left at like 1am and we had to be back by 7am. And again, this place was about 45 minutes away from our, so, so you're not operating on very much sleep at all. No, we I came after we brought her home and got her tucked in, took another nap. So, um, yeah. doing, doing okay. But I have a little, um, Coca-Cola by my side for a little extra caffeine and sugar today. Oh, wow. Um, but she's doing better, but she has like, six medicines and actually my husband's assignment while we're podcasting is to make a, a spreadsheet so that we can print off <laughs> because she has six medicines and some of them are three times a day some are two times a day oh, once wow. sometimes in the morning sometimes at night i'm like there's no like i'm like and she's gonna be on these for yeah at least wow. a week and some of them longer so so were they able to identify the actual bacteria or that's just not in the middle of the night yeah. so yeah they huh. saw rod's Coxi and spirochetes. So oh. she's on flagell essentially. Hey, we know all about flagell. Don't let her drink any alcohol. Use, right? No <laughs> alcohol on flagell. Keep the no, doggy from the champagne. Doxycycline. John Doxycycline too. No, she got a fluoroquinolone um, oh. last night. IV. The and she's on the the flagell, and she's on probiotics. And a whole bunch of other stuff, but she's wow. she's resting comfortably. She is much happier than she was yesterday. So, yeah. but we have we we have her all kind of bundled up in her favorite little place. And so, but she she's on the men. But that was scary. The last time we took a pet to one of those late night emergency things, that that pet got diagnosed with an eight centimeter tumor, and it was yeah not we good. Had ex- so we had an experience like that too a few years ago. So. <laughs> But well, good. Well, I'm glad she's doing well. Much Hopefully, she's yeah. even do okay. My That's puppy great. baby. Happy ending. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> do you have a question for us today? I do. I do. So this question is, hi, my husband and I started our fertility journey two months ago, and I've been listening to your podcast for a while now to make sure I go to our appointments with the right questions. I have hypothyroidism and been on medication for 10 years. I would like to get more information about how your thyroid impacts fertility. They increased my doses. They said my levels were too high for pregnancy. Additionally, through Sono, they saw I have uterine polyps. I don't see much about this online. How are uterine polyps impacting fertility? I'm scheduled to get them removed before trying for IUI. Thanks so much for your help. These are two great questions that affect a lot of people. A lot of people. I think probably each of us had the uterine polyp discussion. I know I have it once a week at least. I had, had one Friday and... Just to kind of jump to that part of it, we think that uterine polyps are kind of like, kind of create inflammation, a sterile inflammatory reaction inside the uterus. You know, normally the uterus, the two side walls of the uterus sit together. And so if there's anything in there, it just causes irritation as it kind of rubs together, the two side walls rub together. It's kind of hard to know with polyps though, which ones are clinically significant, if they all are, if there's a certain size. Um, I think most of us in the field of infertility, you know, as one of you guys have said before, it's kind of shades of gray. It's not, sometimes it's not just one big thing that causes infertility. It's a lot of little things. And so this is one of the little things that we think that we could have a positive impact on by going in surgically and removing those sort of decrease that sterile inflammatory reaction. It's kind of like I tell patients, 
you know, IUDs are a birth control method that a lot of women use. And the, the primary way that IUDs impact in, or cause infertility, keep people from getting pregnant, is just by sitting there. It's a T-shaped structure, real small, sitting inside the uterus that causes friction and irritation. And of course, some of them do also have hormones associated with them, but it's really the friction and irritation that really prevent embryos from implanting. So that's kind of the biologic plausibility, the reason why we think it's important to get rid of those um, when you're trying to get pregnant. I agree with all of that. It's one of those, you know, I think the shades of gray was one of one of my statements. Yeah, I think it was too. And <laughs> in, in, infertility, you know, oftentimes... And I've used that several times, Susan, since you said that <laughs> it's, to some of my patients. It's a little of this, it's a little of that. Yeah, and it's creating and really a beautiful, healthy environment for the embryo to have a great home for the, you know, next nine months. It, it is going to have an impact. Um, I don't usually think that polyps are, are the entire explanation, mm-hmm. but I definitely... Um, have have seen it have a a huge impact and then kind of going on to the thyroid thing. So if you have well controlled thyroid disorder, whether it's hypothyroidism or hyperthyroidism. So when you were talking um our listener that um your levels were too high. So really it was your TSH level that was high showing that your thyroid is actually underactive. And so if you're on thyroid replacement therapy, most REs are going to want you to have a TSH level less than 2.0 going into pregnancy. And, and thyroid is the major metabolism hormone in your body. And it not only controls lots of things that are going on for you, but it also helps um, with healthy baby brain development and, and, and different things like that. So um, well-controlled hypothyroidism really shouldn't have a, a negative impact on your fertility. I, I know... Especially recently, I've seen. Have y'all heard, have y'all had this where people come in and it's like they've been diagnosed with Hashimoto's, and it's like, oh no, I'm never going to get pregnant because I have Hashimoto's, yeah. and I'm like, yeah, yeah it's true. No, I'm like, we control it, and then you're going to yeah. be at the same success rate as as other people who have naturally, you know, you thyroid normal thyroid levels. Do y'all see that in your practices now? Absolutely. A lot of people who are so anxious about their thyroid and and it's important. I mean, if it's really dysregulated, then yeah, that can be related to very irregular menstrual cycles, either too little or too much, depending on which direction can be related with miscarriages. But Mm -hmm. for the most part, like thyroids are fairly straightforward to manage. You, You get on meds and and it regulates and away you go. And so I don't, I don't entirely understand the drama around that other than I do very much understand the you know, once your thyroid goes awry, you're usually on those medications for life. And so yeah. I, I I very much understand that trauma. But um, I think part of it is just with anything. And okay. I think this is true. I see PCOS patients, the same sort of thing. Once you've been given a label and you've been told you have this condition, all of a sudden it just, you know, you probably read about it on the internet. And you hear all these awful stories and you just like, oh my gosh. But like Carrie said, most of the time, these thyroid is really easily manageable. Most people, I mean, it's a rare person that doesn't get managed pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. So our topic today is very much inspired by a listener question. And it's what happens after the retrieval? Because we spend an awful lot of time focusing on what happens before the retrieval and during the retrieval and leading up to it and all of those things. But um, this listener is is wanting to know you know, can we please do an episode on what to expect in the IVF journey after the retrieval position, uh, procedure? So first part of this question is how long does it take to go back to normal? So let's let's talk about what happens once you leave 
the the procedure room. So everything has gone just fine. And let's say you've had kind of an average number of, of follicles, not not a huge number, not you know, not several dozen, not two. Um, but what happens once you get wheeled out of that room? Well, you start waking up. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, most of us use some form of um, what we call conscious sedation. So you're breathing on your own, but you shouldn't really remember anything. Um, really from your procedure. So you'll start kind of waking up. You may be a little groggy and this type of thing. Different people wake up from anesthesia differently, um, but the the general process is the same. And usually that takes about mm, 15 to 30 minutes for you to kind of be relatively with it where you're going to remember uh, all parts of the conversation. Um, you may be kind of achy and crampy and that's normal. That's very normal. Um, if um, a lot of times, the anesthesiologist may have given you some medicine through your IV um, to help with the pain already. But if you're ever having any significant pain, let your doctor or nurses know um, because there's other things that we can give you um, to help kind of get that pain under control because we want you feeling pretty good um, by the time you're leaving. And, and then we're also going to, before you're, you leave, we generally have you take a, a few drinks of something or a little snack of some crackers or graham crackers or something like that, just to make sure you're tolerating things orally. But most people tolerate the actual procedure pretty well and, and can leave within probably 30 minutes to an hour of the actual retrieval. Yeah, and one other thing we always do, and I'm sure you guys do it too, is we like for people to get up and empty their bladder. It's rare, mm -hmm. but it happens. Sometimes procedures, and it doesn't have to be IVF, in fact, I have a urologist that said he had a boy who had a urologic or had a wis wisdom teeth removed. That's what it was and, and couldn't pee. So sometimes your body's response to pain and it's real rare, but the body's response to pain can be constriction of the bladder muscles and you just can't pee. Your body just won't let it happen. Another reason for that is that one of the main medicines that our anesthesiologists use is something called propofol. And mm -hmm. if you happen to be one of those people who takes more propofol than the average person, which you're not going to know unless you've, you know, been under anesthesia before and somebody mentioned, wow, you took a lot of medicine, that propofol actually can cause urinary retention at high dosages. And so those are the people who are going to have the highest risk of not being able to urinate on their own. But the good thing is, even if you can't urinate on the, your own, there's things that we can help you do until your bladder kind of wakes up and your body filters out all that medication. Yeah, so sometimes, you know, even just sometimes a little coaxing, like you turn on the water when somebody's in the bathroom, sometimes that tricks the bladder into working. Um, you know, and, and sometimes we even have to empty the bladder for the first time. And then after that, the bladder works. It's rare that somebody can't pee but after they leave. And if that's the case, it, it always comes back. Uh, knock on wood, I've had probably not just from IVF, but just from surgery in general, four or five people over the years that have had that problem. And everybody gets really panicked, but it always works again. Just your bladder just kind of goes on strike sometimes, but that's <laughs> rare for, for that to happen. So what post-op instructions do you give your patients for that day when, when they've gone through their procedure and they're ready to walk out the door because most of the time you you actually can walk out the door. You're not mm -hmm. you're not necessarily running out the door and you're not necessarily walking in a straight line out the door, but you can you can walk on your own steam. So what what do you guys tell your patients they're walking out the door for the rest of the day? Just kind of, you know, take it easy. Um no alcohol. 
I have definitely had patients who didn't listen to that and they inevitably come back and they're like, you know, you were right about that. (laughs) (laughs) Anesthesia and alcohol don't work well together. Mm -hmm. Um, Don't do anything strenuous, no major, you know, decision making, no major, you know, projects or things like that, but just kind of bum out and take care of yourself that day. So my set of instructions has expanded over the years based on what people have actually done after (laughs) retrievals that they have come back and told us about. So my standard set of uh, of instructions is no drinking, no going down the strip, no gambling, no dancing on tables, <laughs> no major Those life are the decisions. Las Vegas post-op instructions. No Ours would be no two stepping down on Broadway at you know at you know the Hard Rock Cafe or anything. <laughs> no unattended online shopping. Disable your automatic credit card fill-in thing. We've had people come back to us really mad that we didn't tell Seriously. them not to do shopping. Yeah. Um, and no puppies, no purchasing puppies, no purchasing puppies. Uh, okay. <laughs> yeah. There's a story there, I think, but we will, we won't go there. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So essentially the rest of that day is, you know, chill out, get full reign of the remote control. Um, Hydrate. I am happy to give, give people instructions. Oh, I'm really sorry. You can't cook. You can't do laundry. You can't vacuum. You can't clean. You can't do any of that. Most people like uh, those. Most many- people like those instructions though. Yeah, they really like most people like you mean until I get my next period, right? And I'm like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, sure. That's what I mean. Um, so what what do you expect after? So how long does it really take the female body to go back back towards normal, back to where she's feeling like 95% of herself? Let me add in one thing on a personal note. Having done an IVF egg retrieval myself, and Susan has had done one too, and we've talked about this before. I don't know if she had the same experience as, as me, but Having been a physician and done several egg retrievals long before I ever had mine, the thing that surprised me the most was how much it hurt. I mean, it felt like, and and by hurt, I don't mean like severe acute pain, but it felt like I had done about a thousand sit-ups. It felt, my abdomen felt really sore for about 24 hours, but then it's kind of almost like I clipped my fingers, snapped my fingers, and all of a sudden I was fine. But for about 24 hours, it was probably irritation from the blood and the fluids that really caused me to be real uncomfortable. And- I even took some narcotics because it was so uncomfortable. Um, but I don't know if you did. You have that same experience, Susan? How did you? Do you remember how you felt? So funny you mention it. It's the things you block out until somebody starts talking <laughs> about something like this. Because um, as I had mentioned in a previous episode, I had essentially gone across the country to do my IVF my IVF cycle, and so we did egg retrieval, and then we were essentially getting trying to get to the airport. Um, oh, wow. Ooh. After right. egg retrieval. So and would that be something in your post-op instructions you wouldn't recommend going to the airport? Well, I, I mean, I, I understand like life is life. And, yeah. you know, I think if you can wait a day to fly out, it's nice. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember being in the, this is what I'm trying to like, I'm flashing back. I remember being in the taxi and with my husband and like laying down on his lap because I I was like cramping and moderately uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. It, it wasn't terrible, you know. Yeah, it wasn't terrible. The but next it was day just... I was fine because we actually got stuck in a snowstorm. I mean, it was like, you know, the constellation <laughs> of all good events happening. Um, but I do remember, because I, I remember being in the taxi and like kind of laying down being like, oh, I, I don't feel good. And, you know, taxi drivers, they sometimes yeah, are a little... Um, hit the bumps and and that type of thing. Um, so it it can it it's normal to be achy and crampy. Okay, yeah. 
Certainly. Um, and I, as somebody, I didn't, I had diminished ovarian reserves, so I, I didn't have that many follicles. And so I was actually kind of surprised at how achy and crampy I was. I was. It I was definitely surprised. It wasn't intolerable. And if I would have been at home, I probably wouldn't have even like batted an eye over it. But the fact that I was, you know, in somewhere I was unfamiliar with and we were traveling in areas and obviously there was a snowstorm coming in. Um, you know, all those things added up kind of um, probably made it a little more stressful. Yeah. So, I mean, it's normal to have a pretty significant amount of pain short term, but if it's if it's real severe, you need to call your doctor because, you know, right. there can be complications with the procedure, but those are rare. Um, as far as the longer term complications and how, or not complications, but how long does it really take your body to get back down to normal? Probably by your next period. Um, usually your estrogen level has gone back down to normal. Um, your body kind of has a way of resetting. Sometimes you can have leftover cysts on your ovaries. And, you know, remember, technically, every egg comes out of a cyst. So it's normal that, you know, if you've had, instead of had, having one on both your ovaries, you have, you know, five on each ovary. It just takes a while for your body to rebound and get back down to normal again. And so because of the size of those ovaries, that's the reason why we really want you to limit your activity, you know, for a little bit to prevent the ovary from having problems from that, like torsion. So actual time frame, most people are going to... Abby mentioned that first period. Um, that first period actually comes faster than most people expect. So yeah, that, that's that, true. that period usually comes within about seven days of egg retrieval is what I would say would be average. Some people a little less, some people a little bit more. Um, but I would say on average, seven days. And, and the fact that you're having your period is showing that you've made a lot of those hormonal changes to get back to baseline. And, and as Abby said, it's normal to still maybe have some residual cysts from your ovaries kind of shrinking back up. That takes time. Um, just like everything else, it took you a week and a half for those follicles to get big. It's going to take a few weeks for those <laughs> follicles to get small too. But fortunately, you know, depending on what your path is from there, they're usually not secreting a whole lot of hormones, which makes them relatively inconsequential. I would say that some of the the post-op things that show up in the days after, um, a lot of women are constipated. You know, sometimes that's from the procedure and from mm -hmm. fluid in the belly. Sometimes it's just from the hormonal changes because your progesterone goes really high and progesterone is the culprit in pregnancy that leads to constipation. And so I always tell people this, the second you notice a hint of, hey, I'm slower than usual, manage it aggressively, yeah. whether it's stool softeners, Miralax, prunes, whatever works for you, lots of fluids always. Um, make sure you're paying attention to that because it can make your life uncomfortable. I also tell people sleep upright and put put some pillows behind them, sleep kind of in a recliner position because there's always going to be at least a little bit of fluid in your belly. And if you can keep it down low, that means that at least it's just aggravating that area and is not drifting upwards to irritate under your diaphragm and your shoulders and things like that. So none of that will cause physical harm. But it can make your life miserable. And if we can uh, avoid unnecessary misery, let's avoid unnecessary <laughs> misery. All right. So what does the timing typically look like between egg retrieval and FET? So we already talked about how before you can do a frozen embryo transfer, you, you for sure have to get your period. So that right there is roughly you know a week or two, depending on if you're the earlier or the later end of getting your cycle. What happens next? And how long does it take to happen? And is there anything... That's the other part of this question. Is there anything you need to do testing-wise before your FET? I think this is great because I bet we all have some different answers for what happens at, mm -hmm. at this point. Yeah. Yeah. So that was a multi-part question, Carrie, and I can't remember all the parts probably, <laughs> but, but when you talked about timing, 
the way I've started talking to couples about it is it's about a three month, three and a half month process start to finish. Yep. The first half of it, the first six or seven weeks is to get the, you know, get the eggs, get the sperm, create the embryos, do the genetic testing if you're going to do that. And then the second six weeks is basically to prepare for the FET. The first part, ovaries are stimulated, you're bloated. It's a lot more labor intensive on your part. Second six weeks is a little more chill. I mean, basically you start estrogen in some form and you're on it for a few weeks. Then we do your transfer and then we wait two weeks later to, to find out whether or not you're pregnant. So so it's kind of a three, I mean, roughly three months, give or take a little bit. First half is preparation to make the embryos. Second part is preparation to do the embryo transfer. So to kind of describe what we do, um, so for you to get your PGT or the chromosome testing results that a lot of our patients do, that that is not actually a very quick turnaround time. So it usually t- often takes a couple of weeks to get those results back. And so what we do in my practice is most people, unless they have a contraindication or something like that, when they start their period, we get them started on birth control pills mm-hmm. to keep things, get things nice and suppressed and kind of put us in limbo while we're waiting on those results. So instead of going straight into an FET, not knowing what the PGTA testing results are and having to cancel the cycle, we'll get you on those birth control pills and kind of go from there. Um, if you have not already had a uterine evaluation, like a saline ultrasound, sometimes mm-hmm. you may have that done during that time period. Oftentimes with my patients, if we diagnose a polyp um, during a saline ultrasound, right before we're about to start stimulation, we'll do the polypectomy in between retrieval and transfer so that the uterus is nice and perfect um, as we put in that embryo. Um for those of us who do believe in ERAs, um, depending on <laughs> depending on your um, how many embryos you get, if you've had failed cycles in the past, different things like that, that that can sometimes happen. And then whenever we have our results, then we prepare the lining of the uterus, kind of like Abby mentioned, and I'm sure we'll go into that in, in more detail in a few minutes. So for us, um, I you know. Timeline is is fairly similar. You know, I agree with the roughly six weeks to get all the embryo taken care of and then another six weeks to get transfer and pregnancy test results back. And so um, we usually will do a hysteroscopy in between those getting the eggs out and starting the transfer. Um, It allows us to catch any last minute polyps that were subtle and not seen on saline ultrasound. It allows us to evaluate for endometritis and do a little bit more in-depth testing. So all of that is what happens in the interim, as well as one of the most important things, which is letting the body's physiology return to its baseline. Mm -hmm. Because if you go straight in, there's there's actually been some studies done that show that if you go immediately from from a a big stim into transfer, your successor rates aren't quite as good. And so we want to let everything settle down. And it, it doesn't take very long. It's just a couple of weeks. And we get this other stuff done in the meantime. Um, sometimes people have other testing that needs to be re-upped. So thyroid, uh, A1Cs, those things are probably the most common. You know, sometimes making sure that you're not particularly anemic, that that type of stuff. Um, we'll check that. But usually it's just the uterine evaluation. And then we start starting on the transfer protocol. Um, the next half of this question is what type of meds and injections are recommended to prepare the body for the optimal transfer. You know, I think there's tweaks and I think it'll be interesting to see what the three of us say, but the basic process is 
estrogen, if you think of the embryo as seed and the and the endometrium as a soil, we're trying to grow the soil and make it a better place for an embryo to implant. And there's different types, different ways you can deliver estrogen. I prefer patches, but I've also done shots. I've done pills. I've done vaginal estrogen. Um, there's a lot of little delivery systems. And essentially, the basic idea is we want to give you estrogen um, um, for enough time so that it grows your endometrium. Because really, the only way we have to kind of the only metric we really have to look at is how thick your endometrium is and how it looks. So tri-layer is what we shoot for is three lines kind of that we see in your endometrium. And so generally for most people, you're on estrogen of some form for about three weeks. We look at your lining before, we look at your lining after you come in and that's sort of the moment of the of truth. You know, what does your lining look like? Are you ready to go to transfer? And so after that, that's when, if we feel like you are ready to go transfer, then that's ultimately when we start you on intramuscular progesterone and you stay on that ultimately for about eight weeks. If you conceive, you stay on it usually about five and a half. And again, it's, they, Carrie and Susan may differ a little bit, but essentially about five and a half days you're on it prior to your transfer. The key window is you need to be exposed to progesterone, we believe, for about 104 to 144 hours. And we, in our practice, try and hit right in the middle if you've not had some other test like an ERA biopsy that tells us something different. So the way that we prepare um, our lining for um, transfer generally, we use oral estrogen. I've used vaginal estrogen in the past. I've used um, patches and injections if somebody's been resistant, but kind of oral estrogen is where we start. After you're on the estrogen for about two weeks, we do another blood test and ultrasound, make sure everything looks good, really focusing again on the shape and structure of the endometrium. But we also pay attention to that progesterone level um, because that progesterone level can show us some some women will go and recruit a follicle and ovulate through the estrogen. Most people mm -hmm. do not. And if that happens, then unfortunately, the best thing to do is cancel that cycle because um, progesterone opens and closes the window of opportunity of implantation. And if we don't know when that window was open, we could just be tossing that little embryo in a very bad environment. And mm -hmm. you just worked really hard to create that <laughs> embryo. And as frustrating as it is to sometimes have a canceled cycle, um, you know, it, it's important because we we want to make the best of every embryo transfer we have. And if you are one of those people who that happens, there's, there's other tricks in our bag. Um, you know, I think most of us try to kind of do the least invasive, but the most appropriate. And so um, when that happens for one of my patients, I generally do like what we call a OCP Lupron overlap, where we have mm -hmm. you on birth control pills for a few weeks, and then we add in some injections of Lupron. It really helps get, keep your ovaries suppressed until that moment that we are going to start the progesterone. Mm -hmm. It ends up making the embryo transfer prep cycle um, longer. So it takes longer. And obviously you're taking more injections. So I, I prefer to limit your injections if we can. Um, and then when it comes to the actual progesterone, um, I tend to use a combination of vaginal and um, injectable progesterone um, in, in my patients with with good results. But it, it's all it's all variations on the same thing. And then if you've had, um, you know, Failures in the past, sometimes we'll do um, certain types of steroids and antibiotics and in those types of things. And I think everybody has their their kind of magic mixture yeah. <laughs> that, that they the use. But, they're, but they're, all, yeah. they're all similar. It is definitely part of the art of medicine. Just because right. your doctor may not do something exactly like the one of us, that doesn't mean it's wrong. 
Okay. Um, just, just know there, there's, there's lots of ways to, to everything. To make this <laughs> mm-hmm. What about you, Carrie? So I, I mean, my favorite protocol is a, a program cycle using the estrogen and progesterone, like, like you guys have talked about. Um, and so that is my default. That's what I like the best. That's what I've found to be the most reliable and how I, I know what to expect. And so, um, like you, you both kind of alluded to when the, the preferred cycle doesn't go as planned, you know, most of the time we cancel, stop and restart. Um, a lot of us will just do the exact same protocol again, or if there's something really specific, we know we can address like premature ovulation, we need to do a Lupron cycle, like you go, you target that. But sometimes it just doesn't look good. And so a lot of the times we will do the exact same thing over again. And I cannot tell you the number of times where I've had a patient look at me going, it didn't work the first time. Why do you expect it the second time? (laughs) And, And it's just like, look, trust me, I've seen, and I especially see this in my gestational carriers who are proven, you know, have had proven pregnancies and have have previously been just fine. You can do the exact same thing twice in a row, back to back and get one cycle that's awful and one cycle that's gorgeous. That's right. And, And so that's why we do it. But failing that, there's a lot of other protocols that we can go to, whether it's a completely natural protocol, whether it's a modified natural protocol using something like letrozole, whether it's um, gonadotropins, sometimes we have to use the same meds we use to grow your follicles because your endometrium just doesn't respond to anything else. And then there's the ever popular, what I call voodoo protocols, which are every doc's personal concoction of what they think works the best when nothing else has worked. Um, and there's, there's AKA a whole variety the kitchen of sink. AKA the kitchen sink. And, and all of us have usually at least two or three variations of the kitchen sink that we try with people mm-hmm. um, when nothing else is working. But um, but yeah, we're, we're really picky. And as, as much as we know that you are frustrated, that you just want to get to the transfer, we also are trying to take a step back, be super practical and say, look, it took a huge amount of time, money, stress, effort, and just sw- pure sweat to get here. And so we're not going to let you throw this away when we can see there's an obvious problem. Yeah. It's one thing when everybody's talking about it together and say, all right, I think this you know, six and a half millimeter lining is the best we're going to get. It looks beautiful. Let's give it a try. That's different than this is your first time. This lining clearly looks like crap. Yeah. Just and, stop and reset. And when Carrie says looks like crap, kind of what she means, I think, is either the lining's really thin. So that would be a problem mm-hmm. if there's cystic areas in the lining. And I've, I've seen people that have had even one or two and still decide they want to go ahead and they got pregnant, but cystic areas we don't usually like. And sometimes like you were saying with, you can use the same protocol in two cycles and one cycle you see the cyst, the other side, other cycle you don't. Um, other examples would be like if we see mucus or fluid in, in your lining, that yeah. would, that's really concerning. Um, sometimes depending on if it's, you know, this is your first time I'd probably say, let's just cancel this cycle and move to a different cycle, see if we get a different result. If it's your second time and this fluid still keeps accumulating, then every now and then we'll aspirate that fluid and still try for a transfer. Um, But Mm -hmm. those are kind of things that can go wrong with your cycle and we just can't predict those, unfortunately. And I've had a couple of people recently that had fluid in their uterus and one of them for sure was actually a person who was coming back for a second baby and it happened her first time. And it's very interesting when people have fluid in their uterus a lot of times, once we start the progesterone, because realize it that starting away. progesterone, it 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 change it makes a confirmation change in the structure mm-hmm. of what what the endometrium's doing. 
And a lot of people will expel all of that fluid. So when I have somebody like that, um, I oftentimes will have them come in the day or two before we're going to actually do the embryo transfer. So while the embryo is still nice and frozen and, and safe and sound, we'll repeat the scan. If the fluid's still there, then absolutely cancel. But you know, a lot of times um, that stuff will get expelled from the uterus and, yeah. and we can move forward too. Yeah. All right. Any last minute thoughts of things that just popped into your brain of these are these are the things that that can happen between retrieval and transfer and one thing that we alluded to that um that I want to be a little more explicit about is post transfer excuse me post retrieval no sex and no major exercise right. until your doctor tells you so so it's not just the day of it's usually until you get that period and we're all saying this because at some point all of us have seen someone who has gone hiking, has gone, has had sex, has done whatever, and then had an ovarian torsion yeah. or started bleeding. And those are very hard to fix outside of taking out that ovary, which none of us want to do. Or even more common. So, oh, sorry, go ahead, Carrie. You weren't finished. Oh, so I so I was just gonna say, so when we tell you to <laughs> take it easy, do not mean bed bound, but we also mean you know, go to the grocery store, sit at your desk job. This is not the time to, you know, to do something wild and crazy, even if it doesn't seem wild and crazy, like, you know, give give us the benefit of the doubt. Well, and I, I usually tell all of my patients, and I'm surprised the number of patients that, that plan to go back to work the next day. I'm like, this is a surgery. Your ovaries are huge. And I always say, it's kind of like if you took your size eight foot and tried to stuff it in a size five shoe and walk around all day, your feet would be killing you. Well, your ovary is like the size of an orange or a grapefruit, and you've got two of them in there, and everything's being pushed in different directions, and your ovaries are probably rubbing up against your abdominal wall. And, and the and you know people sort of think, oh, well, why would I hurt if you know my procedure's over with? Well, your ovaries are still really enlarged and really uncomfortable and really irritated from surgery. So I would highly recommend if you do IVF, take the day off. They're not going to miss you for that one extra day at work. Just take the day off and take it easy. By the third day, you're probably going to feel okay. Good stuff. All right. Well, thank you so much to our listeners for joining us and hanging out with us. We're very grateful to have you as always. Be sure to subscribe, leave us a review. We would love to hear from you. We're on Instagram, we're on Facebook, we're on YouTube. So hop on by, leave us a like and a follow and say hello. You can also visit us on fertility.sensensor.com to submit specific questions. All questions will be answered on the podcast for the Ask the Doc segment. We'd love to hear episode ideas. Um, so um, we look forward to hearing from you soon. As always, this podcast is intended for entertainment and is not a substitute for medical advice from your own physician. All right, we'll talk to you soon. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. This podcast is also brought to you by Fertility Pharmacy of America. Fertility Pharmacy of America is a fertility dedicated pharmacy that partners with physicians across the country in order to provide patients with a more personalized pharmacy experience. Pride ourselves on ensuring that every prescription is accurate, delivered in a timely manner, and most importantly, affordable for all patients. A team of trained pharmacists, technicians, and customer service representatives will be with you every step of the way, providing you with knowledge and exceptional quality care for all of your fertility medication needs. More than just a specialty pharmacy, they're a committed partner during your fertility journey. Fertility Pharmacy of America, making miracles happen every day. Please text or call us at 844-449-8767 and reference Fertility Docs Uncensored.